I'd like for you to take the Word of God, please, and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 16 and 17. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and verses 16 and 17. While you make your way over there, and don't forget that Sunday night, January the 31st, we will be singing your favorite hymns and also giving opportunity for you to, uh, to express how you see God working in your life. We call that testimony time. That's what we used to call it. And so uh, we do that uh, on the fifth Sunday, every time there's a fifth Sunday. We have that on Sunday night. That's coming up January 31st. Uh, Sunday, February the 14th, we have I Love My Church Sunday. And uh, we love him because he first loved us. And uh, so we'll have that on Valentine's Day. On Tuesday, February the 23rd, I'm planning, if the Lord will, and I live that long, and, and we're, we have opportunity, I'm planning to go to Olympia and uh, pray with our wonderful legislators, our representatives, uh, one of whom is here today, and we're grateful to see, uh, see Rob this morning again, and then also pray for Senator, uh, pray with Senator Patton. So pray uh, as that time approaches that I'll be uh, able to do that. I, I take it a great privilege and very humbling to be able to serve the state in that way. And so I, uh, I want to be able to do that. Pray that God will allow us and enable us uh, to make that visit on February, Tuesday, February the 23rd. Wonderful. I think you've had time to find your way over to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and a familiar passage of Scripture which says, uh, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Our gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you bless the reading of your word. I pray that you bless our time uh, as, we, uh, as we open it up. And Lord, I pray that you open our understanding and to understand what it is that you're trying to communicate this morning. And Lord, I pray that you'd en enable me uh, to be a, a good speaker, uh, to, uh, Lord, not just capture the interest of people, but that I would be a, a clean vessel fit for you so that you can work through me. Uh, Lord, and, and so that you might get the glory. We thank you and praise you for all that you do. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, um, we're going to visit this subject again today. We've done it in the past when we speak of the Word of God, what it is. And I want you to notice the simple phrase at the beginning of verse number 16, which says, All Scripture. All Scripture. The Christian believes in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Word of God. Have you ever heard somebody use that word plenary before? We believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Word of God. That word plenary means absolute. It's absolutely uh, the Word of God. I uh, want to bring this message to you just as a reminder, once again, of what it is that, uh, that, we, that we set our focus on, that we... Uh, that we find our belief in. Of course, it starts with the Word of God. Um, the Word of God is, uh, is something that cannot be destroyed. Uh, in 303 AD, a Roman emperor by the name of, there's two ways to pronounce it, and so I'll just use both of them. That way, nobody can pick on me. Uh, it's either Diocletian or Diocletian. He's a Roman emperor in 303 AD. And he declared that he was going to remove Christianity and its writings from off of the face of the earth. And a couple of years later, he actually erected a monument 
that stated or communicated that Christianity had indeed been extinguished uh, and that its writings had, had gone away. However, in 312 AD, a Roman emperor by the name of Constantine uh, showed up and he realized that Diocletian or Diocletian's efforts had been in vain. And that it was probably nothing more than a pipe dream. And uh, that uh, the more that the Roman Empire tried to stamp out Christianity, the greater its influence grow, grew. And uh, therefore, Constantine attempted to defeat Christianity in a slightly different way. Diocletian came at it from, we're going to extinguish it from the face of the earth. And Constantine said, took, took an approach that was more like, if you can't beat them, join them. And he marched all of his troops through the Rhine River and declared that the whole Roman Empire was now Christian. And so he said, well, uh, the more that we try to stamp out Christianity, the greater its influence grows. And so if you can't beat them, join them. Marches the troops through the Rhine River, declares all of the Roman Empire Christian. Nevertheless, Constantine's declaration was not accurate, and the Roman Catholic Church was born. And they took the pagan Roman holidays, they Christianized them, and the average person was not given access to the Holy Writ. Now that's a whole lot of history condensed down to just a few sentences. And so I hope that that uh, helps on the introduction. Now, now think about this. A thousand years after that had taken place, um, a man shows up in the world's scene by the name of John Wycliffe. And he believed that the common person uh, should have access to the scriptures. And so he translated the word of God so that anybody who was able could read it. Now, Wycliffe was so hated uh, for doing this that the Catholic Church ordered his execution, but before they could get to him to arrest him and to execute him, he died. And so you know what they did? They dug up his body, they exhumed his body, and they burned his corpse. Because they hated him so much for making the Word of God available to the common person. The Bible is the Word of God, and it cannot be destroyed. In Psalm 119, the verse number 89 says, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. A little while later, same chapter, Psalm 119, uh, verse number 160, it says, Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. The word of God cannot be destroyed. I'd like to share with you some testimonies of what other people have had to say about the Bible. The first one is from the great prayer warrior, the German George Mueller. He said, The vigor of life will be in exact proportion to the place held by the Bible in our life and in our thoughts. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, said this, Nobody ever outgrows scripture. The book widens and deepens with our years. A man by the name of John Bunyan, he's the author of The Pilgrim's Progress and many other of the Puritan writings. Uh, I don't know if you knew this, but Bunyan was imprisoned for 12 years because he refused state licensure to be licensed to preach. And the judge even said, look, Mr. Bunyan, all you have to do is pay the nominal fee and get a license and you could be set free from jail. By this time, he'd already spent, I think, six years in prison. And he said, no. I won't take it. He was in prison for another six years, and he wrote the book, The Pilgrim's Progress. This is what he had to say about the Holy Scriptures. I never knew all there was in the Bible until I spent those years in jail. I was constantly finding 
new treasures. John Quincy Adams, that name sound familiar? The sixth president of the United States. So great is my veneration for the Bible that the earlier my children begin to read it, the more confident will be my hope that they will prove useful citizens to their country and respectable members of society. We sure have come a long way, haven't we? And that's what some people have had to say about the Word of God. How about the testimony of the Bible concerning itself? We find one of the testimonies here in our text this morning, 2 Timothy 3, 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That word inspiration is translated from a compound Greek word, theonistus. And as we have mentioned in times past, that, that that literally means God breathed. How many of you remember the time that I brought a pneumatic nail gun in here? Some of you remember because it startled you when I did it. And I took two pieces of wood and I plugged the air supply into that pneumatic uh, uh, air nailer. And I put it down on that piece of wood and bang, it shot a nail through the top piece of wood into the bottom piece of wood. And, and uh, that word theonustus, the word noustus is where we get our, uh, our word pneumatic from. And that was a pneumatic tool. It needed air plugged into it for it to be effective. And, and that is a demonstration or was a demonstration of how God plugged in to human beings and used those human beings to write his words. Without him, they, they would have just been man's words. But because it was God that breathed through them, it became God's word. God used them just like I used that nail gun to shoot a nail through those boards. God used those men to write those men, those men uh, to write his words. And so the testimony of the Bible concerning itself we find here, but we also find in 2 Peter, book of 2 Peter, if you'd like to turn there, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 21. The word of God says there, as you make your way to 2 Peter 1, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. They, uh, that, that breath of God breathed through them and they wrote. You know, and here's what's amazing. In some cases, they didn't understand what it was that they were even writing. The prophets, the, the minor prophets tell us that. That they didn't even understand what it was that they were writing oftentimes because they were writing concerning in seed form concerning the things of Christ that were to come. What we find in seed form in the Old Testament comes to fruition in the New Testament. It's all one book meant to be taken as a whole. And that is the, uh, the Bible's testimony of itself. The, the Bible says of itself that its origin is God. It is the Word of God. And only those who believe that the Bible is the Word of God will escape the eternal separation from God. Look at John chapter 5 and verse number 24. John 5 and verse number 24 tells us, Jesus speaking here, Recorded, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death into life. And so those that uh, hear the word of Christ, they, they believe the word of Christ, they pass from condemnation unto life. They escape eternal separation from God. The only way to escape the wrath of God is to hear and believe the word of God, Romans 10, 17. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So the Bible uh, is that. The Bible is a fixed point of reference. I'm so happy, especially in these changing times, that we've got a fixed point of reference that we can always go back to. It is the verbal, we call it the verbal, 
plenary, inerrant, infallible, unchangeable Word of God. That's, I believe, the wording that we use in our church bylaws, in our church constitution. We must be uncompromising and take the right position along with right disposition, aligning ourselves behind it. You know, somebody has said, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. The fact is, God said it, that settles it. Well, I don't even have to believe it. It's God's Word, you know. You can take that right out of it. The Bible has said that it is the Word of God. The testimony of Jesus Christ concerning the Bible, the skeptic does not believe the Word of God. For example, uh, a skeptic cannot swallow the truth that man was swallowed by a whale. He can't do that. He can't swallow that because he's a skeptic. But the Lord Jesus Christ tells us that that account was true. Look at Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. And uh, verses 38 through 40. Matthew 12, verse 38. Uh, then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. See, they're always seeking after a sign. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. There shall no sign be given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then, so we see that the Lord Jesus used that and said, this is your sign, the account of Jonah and the whale. Now the skeptic might find that hard to swallow, that a man was swallowed by a whale. And Christ was talking about his death, burial, and resurrection. He was testifying also that the Word of God was true by making that comparison. Do you believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? Then you can believe that there was a man who was swallowed by a whale. It's an amazing thing. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around that. There are some professing Christians who say that the biblical account of creation of the world should not be believed by sensible people. I have run into more than one person that has said, well, you know, just because the Bible says that the, the universe was created in uh, six days and God rested on the seventh, doesn't mean that it was literally six days. Well, I believe in the literal creation of the world in six days and God rested on the seventh. It's trans the word day is translated from a word which means a 24-hour period. And so I even had a man one time, I was, I was speaking about that, and he said afterwards, he caught me, you know, uh, between services and said, well, just because... Uh, you know, uh, the Bible says that God uh, spoke things into existence doesn't mean that weren't things here uh, that he used to do it. And I took him to Hebrews chapter 11, if you'd like to go there. And I said, well, that's not what the Bible says. That's a nice thought. He was a, th a thinking man. He was a sensible man. And uh, it says uh, there in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. And so I said, how do you explain that? God spoke it into existence. And, and there's a lot of Christians who uh, say that the biblical account of creation, of the creation of the world, should not uh, be uh, believed by sensible people. But let's listen to the testimony of one that was here when it happened. How about that? Because the fact is none of us were here, I don't think. Uh, I think the oldest person that we have here is maybe in their 80s. And uh, that's certainly not like that. Methuselah lived to be 960 some odd years old. And, uh, and Noah lived to be 950 years old. There's only one uh, that we can read of in the Word of God that gives us an account of what really happened. Well, he was there. Look at Matthew chapter 19. We'll take his testimony. Matthew chapter 19, verses uh, 3 and 4. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him. 
and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that, the, that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? You know why Jesus could say that? Because he was there when it happened. By the way, there's only two, male and female. That's it. There's, there's no other choice. If you're confused about that, come, come to faith in Christ. He'll help you with your identity. He will. I'm not being uh, trying to be uncaring. I'm trying to be compassionate in that. And there's only two. There's male and female. And uh, if, if you have to, take a blood test. Look at the chromosomes. You've got an X and a Y or an X and X. There's only two, male and female. God made two of them, says right there. And, and he was their creation. For by him, the Bible says in Colossians chapter 1, were all things created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Galatia, uh, Genesis, rather, Genesis 1, 26, God said, let us use those, use those plural pronouns. Let us make man in our image. A lot of people think when they get to heaven, they're going to see three gods. They're going to see one God. They're going to see God the Father. They're going to see God the Son. They're going to see God the Holy Spirit. That's one God. God the Son is the part of God we can see. God the Father is the part of God that we can know. God the Holy Spirit is the part of God that we can sense and we can feel. But we're going to see one God. That one God is a triune God. He's a three-in-one God. And he created man. He was their creation. Christ was their creation. Christ didn't begin in a manger in Bethlehem. We talked about that not many weeks ago. But when the fullness of time was come, God came to this earth in a man's body. And in that man's body lived a sinless life. Died, or, or let me back up, went to the cross, shed his blood, died, and was buried. And in that man's body, three days just like Jesus gave testimony of Jonah being in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, in that human body, Jesus lay in that grave for three days and three nights and resurrected in that human body three days, three nights later. And ascended 40 days after that. There's over 500 witnesses that say he walked around the face of this earth and spent time with them and ascended in that human body to be seated at the right hand of the throne of God where he is today interceding on behalf of the lost. And on behalf of the saved, on behalf of people. And so you see there the testimony of Christ, despite what the skeptics have to say concerning the Word of God. Christ said it's true. And I would like to ask and, and help, uh, have us contemplate this morning would, would we be so proud as to say that we know more than God? Would we be so proud to say that? Does a preacher who questions the authenticity of Scripture and the one with a congregation that's foolish enough to follow him <laughs> know more than God? We know that we nor they know more than God. Nobody knows more than God. Now, may I, I want to stop here for a moment and, and, and tell you that we believe in a literal grammatical interpretation of Scripture. We believe that except for where there are figurative things used. The kingdom of heaven is likened to, Jesus said, right? And so he's giving a figure to, to open the understanding of those who listen to what he has to say. And we need to understand uh, that uh, we ought to take that view of the scriptures. There are other methods of biblical interpretation which may be used. 
The problem is they're usually overused. Now, what I'm about to say here, don't anybody panic if you have any questions. I'll clear it up with you if you don't understand what I'm about to say. You can even overuse a literal interpretation of the scripture. That can be overused. Now, we believe in the literal grammatical interpretation of the scriptures, but if we could take that overboard and say, you know, well, Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven is likened to a, a, a mustard seed. And so that mustard seed is, is the kingdom of heaven. You see what I'm saying? And to take it overboard, and some people do that. And so they begin to see God in everything. And they'll overuse that. Uh, another thing which gets overused is rationalism. That's a method of biblical interpretation. Um, I, I think we have to be very careful of that because we like to do that. That goes back to what we talked about creation. So many good, good Christian people that I know have told me, you know, just because the Bible says that the world was created, the universe was created in six 24-hour days, that doesn't mean it was created in six 24-hour days. And there's, there's things that, you know, different theories that have been dropped here and there. And it's because they over-rationalize it. Well, the strata in the earth indicates that the earth is billions and billions and millions of years old. And it's just not. And so they, they over-rationalize the Word of God. This happened just recently. I don't know if you knew this or not, but it happened just recently with the appearance of the star of Bethlehem. When Jupiter and Saturn lined up at, Christ, at Christmas time, I think it was, was it on Christmas Eve or a few days before Christmas Eve? And everybody said, oh, that's what the wise men saw. But a, but a very casual perusal of the scriptures will tell you that that is not what the wise men saw. That's not what the wise men saw. There's two glaring problems. That as I, as I saw the news article, I thought it was neat. I mean, I won't deny it to you that I went out to look at it. I thought it was a neat thing to consider. But that's not what those wise men saw. I promise you that. And people over-rationalize. They say this is what they saw. I think the, the, most, the most damaging thing by over-rationalizing is that you take away from the fact that God could do something like that. That it could cause a, a, a particular anomaly to occur. Something that's miraculous that had never happened before and that would never happen since. And we try to over-rationalize these things. I, I wasn't going to go into all this, but you say, well, what are the glaring truths? Well, number one, it says that the star that those wise men follows, uh, followed came and stood over the place where Jesus was. My friend, I've been out to sea enough to realize that there's this thing called perspective. And no matter how close you get to the North Star, it still looks like it's moving. We've over-rationalized that. Here's, a, here's another glaring, obvious flaw. Having had opportunity to be on the open seas and, not, and being all over the world, I've been around the world twice. No matter where you look, the moon still rises in the same place and the sun still sets in the same place. And no matter where you're looking, uh, you're looking in the same direction. We're a very small ball in a very big universe. And the wise men said to Herod, we have followed his star from the east. And I don't know if you knew this, if you paid close enough attention, but the star of Bethlehem that was the aligning of Saturn and Jupiter happened in the west. 
They couldn't follow East. Just a couple of things. We've over-rationalized these things. You see, be very careful about that. And, and so uh, we, we've got to understand, we don't know more about the Word of God than, than God knows. The account of the worldwide deluge seems like a, uh, to many to be a fable, nothing but a made-up story which teaches some moral concept. By the way, just about every people group in the world has, has a similar story to a worldwide deluge. Even though I think the Aztecs, they found some drawings that the Aztecs uh, alluded to this worldwide deluge. And it teaches some moral concept. Consider what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24. In Matthew chapter 24 and verses uh, 35 through 39, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Am I on the right chapter? Yes, I am. Uh, but of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of, of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so uh, shall also the com coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. And so some scoff at the idea that, and it's a remarkable story, but some really scoff at the idea that a man who was not a shipbuilder uh, constructed an ocean-going vessel that held pairs, in some cases seven, of every species of animal that walks on the face of the earth. They just can't, they can't believe that. Many have tried to find the ark and substantiate that the biblical account of Noah's ark is true. I think it would be a fascinating thing if they found it, if they located it. Many think that they have. But whether the ark is found or not, the fact that God said it is true enough. That's it. Matthew 24, the Lord Jesus Christ gave testimony of Noah and the ark is foolish for man to presume that he knows more than God. And so let us without apathy or apology boldly declare what the Lord Jesus Christ declared being full of grace and truth that the Bible is the word of God. We can take the right position and have the right disposition, right? We can't be, we shouldn't be guilty of speaking the truth only. We've got to speak the truth in love. So we ought to be careful to do that. So we've talked about the testimony of what other people had to say. We've talked about the testimony of the Bible concerning itself. We've talked about the testimony of Christ uh, concerning the scriptures. Then let's talk about this, the testimony of the Christian concerning the Bible. Testimony of the Christian concerning the Bible. Because here's the truth. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what I want you to believe. It doesn't matter what you want me to believe. What matters is what God wants us to believe. And the testimony of the Christian is this. The end of all arguments lands right here. And we can disagree about many things. I'm sure that we uh, could go through the room could fill up a, a lot of time disagreeing about things. But uh, when it comes uh, what comes to the things of the Word of God, we, we rest on that, don't we? Because it's a fixed point of reference. So what does God's Word say? What does God's Word want us to believe? Well, number one, the Bible wants us to believe that the Bible is God's Word. That's why it says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. In 2 Peter 1.21, as we discussed, the Bible also wants us to believe that Jesus is God. It is impossible to become a Christian apart from believing that Jesus is God in the flesh. Uh, John 1, 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, the Word was with God. The same was in the beginning with God. And uh, verse number 14, we beheld His glory. Let's look at verse 14 there. Uh, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of, of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so uh, God wants us to believe that Jesus is God. 
Bible wants God wants us to believe from the Bible that we're sinners by nature and by practice. For as by uh, one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, and uh, so uh, that all have sinned. We know that we inherited sin from our uh, our first parents, Adam and Eve. Right? It was all the way back to the book of Genesis, and and everybody that was born after the fall of man was born uh, with the same spiritual birth defect. Somebody has once once said. We're all uh, spiritually stillborn. We're, we're still a trichotomous being. We've got a body, a soul, and a dead spirit. What God needs to do in order for us to have a relationship is to make that spirit alive. That's why in Ephesians chapter 2, it says, And you hath he quickened who are dead in trespasses and sins. And so, the word of God wants us to believe. God wants us to believe that we're sinners by nature and by practice. Not only that, we spoke of in Sunday school this morning, that God's a holy God and that our sin separates us from Him. Our sin separates us from God. In Isaiah 59, 2, I've got it written in my notes. You can write it down in yours. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God. And your sins have hid His face from you that He will not hear. Our sins offended a holy God. And God wants us to believe that. In the story of the rich young ruler where we were in Sunday school, I don't know if you had opportunity to see it, but when the rich young ruler came to Christ, he kneeled to him. He showed all the proper respect to Christ as a teacher. But what he didn't recognize is that Christ was God in the flesh. And instead of addressing the young man's question, he rebuked him for the way that he was, that he was greeting Jesus. And what he was trying to do is get that rich young ruler's focus on God. And that, that even though he had kept all of the commandments that Jesus spoke of, he was unwilling to let God have the preeminence of his life. He wasn't willing to sell all of his belongings because he had, he went away sad. Remember the story? Because he had many possessions. He had great possessions. And God pointed that out. Christ pointed that out. And that's what he's, uh, God wants us to believe that our sins separate us from God. God wants us to believe that there's a payment to be made for sin for the wages of sin is death. We understand that. God's been offended and there's a payment to be made for that sin. He wants us to believe that he loves us in spite of our sin. Isn't that wonderful? I'm glad for that most of all. And that He paid for our sin with His own blood. But God commendeth His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For He, God, made Him, Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. It's a wonderful thing. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we're healed. You see, God wants us to know that. That even though that he's been offended by our sin, and that there's a payment to be made for our sin, the payment of sin is, of, is death, the wage of sin is death, that he paid the payment, and the payment that Christ made satisfied the wrath of God forever. It was the propitiation, that's the Bible word for it, for our sin. It satisfied the wrath of God. And he wants us to believe that his blood can cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1 and verse number 7. He wants us to believe that Jesus resurrected bodily from the dead. And having power to give up life and take it back, he has the power to give eternal life to all who believe. Some say that the Lord's Prayer is the one that begins, Our Father which art in heaven. That's not the Lord's Prayer. That's the pattern that Jesus gave. The real Lord's Prayer is found in John 17. And in that real Lord's Prayer, the Lord said this, As thou hast given him power over all flesh, speaking of himself, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. See, that's what God wants us to believe. 
that Christ has the power to give eternal life. God wants us to believe that we must turn to Christ alone as our only hope of a relationship with Him and a home in His presence for eternity. Even Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You know what the world says? Doesn't the world say we're all the children of God? Right? Doesn't the world say that? I think it's Galatians chapter 3. And uh, verse number 23 says, uh, no, it's verse number 22. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. That's not the right verse. It says somewhere, we're all the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And I can't 26. find it right now. 26, I was awful close when I said 23. Thanks, Linda. For you all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. You see, the world says we're all the children of God, but the Word of God says no, only those that are trusted in Christ alone. That's what God wants you to believe. You see, uh, some people, I just ran into this argument. Uh, not why I, I run into a lot of arguments, believe it or not. I, I know you find that hard to believe because I'm such a likable guy, you know. Uh, but somebody was telling me, yeah, I was, I had several, uh, Wednesday nights ago we had the service and I took Second uh, Chronicles 7.14 uh, and I broke that down and, um, and, and God's telling his people, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Took that and broke that down a little bit and somebody uh, uh, just jumped up and they said, well that was a promise made to Israel. That was a promise made to Israel. Well, if you start to divide God's word up like that, you're in trouble. If you've got to divide, because there's three groups, that, according to the Bible, the, Jew, the Gentile and the church. And if you're not a Jew, uh, if you're not a, uh, then you're a Gentile. And so all you have to do is you can throw out everything that God said to the Jews and only believe what he said to the Gentiles and to the church, right? That's the problem. But that's what they said. That was a promise. Second Chronicles seven fourteen was a promise made to the nation of Israel. So I brought them to Galatians chapter three, where it says this: uh, For his look at verse twenty seven. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Neither there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You're grafted in. Romans chapter 11, 12, right? And so it's all for us. And that's what God wants us to believe. And God wants us to believe that there's one way. Not, not many ways, but one way. And He is that one way. And He also wants us to believe this, and this is where we'll draw it to an invitation. God wants us to believe that all who reject Christ are lost, they're without hope, they're under the condemnation of God's wrath, and on the road to separation from God for eternity and, and everlasting punishment. The Bible says in Revelation 21.8, But the fearful and the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You see, these are the things that God wants us to believe. These are the things. And so, my invitation to you today as we as we. As we listen to a hymn of invitation, if you're interested, you can turn to song number 59 in your hymn book. But I want to make an invitation. Mrs. Knopf, she's going to come and she's going to play some uh, piano music. I think that every message that is preached ought to have an invitation to it, a conclusion that invites people to do something with what we've heard. And so the first thing I would like to invite you to do this morning is 
is to believe what God's Word says about the person of Christ and the passion of Christ and our need for His provision. There's never been a time in your life when you've trusted in Christ alone as your only hope of a relationship with God and a home in His presence for eternity. Why don't you do that today? Why don't you believe what God's Word says concerning Christ, concerning the passion of Christ, concerning our need for His provision, His shed blood? Bye. For the shedding of blood, without the shedding of blood, is no remission. It had to happen. If Christ already paid for it, why would we, why would we try to pay for it ourselves again? Receive that today. We believe what God's Word says about the person of Christ, His passion, and His need, of, and our need of His provision. Right where you are, you see the quietness of your heart. You might just reach out to God from the heart, not the head. With the heart. For the heart man believeth unto righteousness. The mouth confession is made unto salvation. Won't you call unto him? Won't you cry out to him, say, Oh God, I believe. With as much as I have in me, I believe that Jesus Christ is my only hope of a relationship with you and a home in your presence for eternity. If you already have already done that, you've already trusted in Christ as your Savior, I'm glad that you have. I'm glad that you've believed God's word concerning the person of Christ and the passion of Christ. And the fact is we live in a wicked world, don't we? And, that, and it's not because we don't have the word of God. The real problem is we've neglected it. We've neglected it. Our culture has gone through a revolution. You've watched it happen in your lifetime. Our culture has gone through a revolution, a removal of an entire generation from a basic understanding of the truths that we find in God's Word. That's happened in my lifetime. Just in recent years, I've actually had people tell me, I've shared something with them from the Word of God. In particular, I've shared with them how they can know that when they come to the end of this life, they'll be with God. And I've shared the gospel with people and had them tell me, nobody's ever told me that before. In a Christian nation, I forget what the statistic is, but it's alarming of how many people do not even have a copy of God's Word in their home. I got so burdened about that, I don't know if you remember this, but a couple of years ago, we made an attempt and we did a pretty good job at it, at getting a New Testament into every household in the city of Liberty Lake, over 3,000 households at the time, personally hand-delivered Word of God. So every household could have a copy of God's Word so that everybody would have a witness there's people that, uh, an entire generation that have grown up without understanding basic the basic truths of God's Word that you grew up in, in your homes, in your public schools, and, and in your culture. I mean, the whole culture resembled the church. And the culture looked to the church for how to behave themselves and how to conduct business. It wasn't to say that the culture was perfect. By no means would that be true. But we live in a post-Christian era. Those days are gone. We need to turn and return back to the Bible, and it needs to begin in the house of God. God's people don't even know what it says. You know? Here's what I'm asking you to do. If you have trusted in Christ alone as your only hope of relationship with God and all His presence for eternity, I'm asking you as a believer to commit commit this morning, maybe it's a recommittal, to confirming that you believe all scripture is the verbal plenary 
word of God. And I don't want you to commit that to me. I want you to commit that to God. During this invitation time, I want you from your heart, right where you are, build an altar and say, God, I've neglected your word. I know about it, but I, I don't know you through it. I'm going to commit to doing that. And I'm going to commit to believing that your word is the verbal, plenary, complete, absolute word of God. And make that commitment to God this morning. And then follow through on it. To know him through his word. We do that this morning? My faith looks up to thee. Is the song that's playing. Right in the quietness of your own heart. Trust in Christ as your Savior. Or commit. Commit. To his word. All scripture. As the verbal plenary word of God. Right in the quietness of your heart.